We're going to read now our reading for this evening, and it comes from 1 Samuel. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to open them up to 1 Samuel and chapter 17, we're going to be reading the first 26 verses. And if you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page 288. So it's 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall, and he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his leg, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come out to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three older sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this effort of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He'll also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. 
David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And Phil's going to come up and, and bring us God's word from this, from this passage. It's a fantastic passage. And as he does, I'm going to pray for him when he's up here. Heavenly Father, we want to pray that we would be ready to, to have your word take root in us like we've just sung, that it would take deep, deep roots in us, that your words would come to us through Phil, through his preparation, through the work he's done, praying through and looking at your words. Father, we pray that you, you use him now as your vessel to us, and we pray that we would be ready for your words to really, really take root in us. Amen. But if you could have your Bibles open to that passage, we're going to look at it now. It's the first part of a familiar story, uh, one that is endlessly copied in literature and film. For example, when you take a step back and look at the storyline of every Marvels or Star Wars movie, or a Jason Bourne or a Jack Reacher novel, the plot is one big stereotype following this storyline. The good guy faces unimaginable evil, and because he's on the good side, and because he's the good guy, he wins against all logical outcomes. The story of David and Goliath is a well-worn story in our church life too. And because it's so well-worn, it's very easy to be lazy about how we read this story. It can be very tempting to read this story and wonder, well, is this what's going to happen to my Goliaths if I trust in God enough? Is this how I should face the daunting situation or the person at school or at work? Should I face them in the strength of the Lord, trusting that I will overcome them by his powers, just like David did? But if we apply logic, this passage cannot be about us defeating our Goliaths, because most of the time, in real life, it doesn't work that way. So because of reality, we have to take a step back and ask, what is this passage really all about? It can't be about us facing our Goliaths, because real life says, Goliath most of the time wins. Well, in order to find out how do we read this passage, we've got to look at the big picture. Take a step back and look at the context. The wider story is about the contrast between Saul and David. On the one hand, Saul was the people's king. So if you look at 1 Samuel 12, verse 13, uh, Samuel, uh, Samuel says to the people, now here is the king you have chosen. The one you have asked for. See, the Lord has set him king over you. Saul is the people's king. And since chapter 8, we've seen that the whole reason that the people wanted a king in the first place was because they'd rejected God as king and wanted something that all the other people in the countries around them had, a king. They didn't want God, invisible as he was, to be king over them. He wanted a, a real man with real muscles and a real chariot and a real palace to be king over them. So God gave them what they want. That's his grace to them. He gave them Saul, and Saul was a king 
of the type that they wanted. We're told that Saul was a head and shoulders above all the people in Israel. A monster of a man, basically. But in his heart, he led the people away from God. He was not God's king. He led them away from worshipping God. So then when we go back to the passage we looked at last time, we see God had got so fed up with Saul that he'd rejected Saul as king and had chosen a king of his own. God's chosen king. And we're told that the biggest difference between Saul and David is that David loved God. His heart longed for, was after God, wanted to serve God. That was David, God's king. And that's the contrast in the wider context. Saul, the people's choice, who led Israel away from God, and David, God's king, who loved God. And from there we have to ask, well, what does this passage add to that contrast between David and Saul? And how is it that when Goliath comes into the... Sorry, and, and... And and when Goliath comes into the frame, what happens? What does that expose? What does that show us? That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. And so it leads us to our first point, which is simply this, the enemy of God's people. The enemy of God's people. The passage starts with a description of Goliath. It's a long description of Goliath, isn't it? You don't get that in the, in the, uh, in the children's Bibles, do you? This long description of Goliath and all his armor and all his bits and bobs and shield bearer, etc., etc., and sandwich holder. He didn't have, you're not told that, but the Bible tells us that, so what is it saying? Look at me. Look, look at verse four with me. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a, stat, a span, in other words, uh, three meters tall. He's intimidating. He's a monster. He's a beast. The next few verses are devoted to all that he was, and it's a lot of ink devoted to the size of the opposition. Goliath, in a word, was mohusive. My own word, just work with me. And it's written to tell us the enemies of God, God's people are intimidating. But it also says they've got a big mouth. Goliath was insulting, intimidating and insulting. Look at verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for a battle? What are you doing here? Why do you bother? Why do you get up out of bed? I mean, I'm going to squash you people. Just get over the reality. I'm a Philistine. You, let me tell you what you are. You're not even people. You're not even valid, worthy objects. You are simply just servants of your man Saul. That's all you are. You're not even people in your own right, so don't even turn up to fight. That's his, that's his taunt. He's insulting. And then in, in verse 10, he's irreverent. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy, I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let's fight each, uh, let us fight each other. It's an in-your-face defiance at their faith. We know that because later, David expresses outrage at Goliath's insults against the armies of the living God. David makes the link. You insult God's armies, you insult God himself and his power. 
So the story doesn't spare us any of these intimidating, insulting, and irreverent details. Actually, it lingers over them. And the point behind it is that Goliath summarizes essentially what we find in all things that oppose God's people. Ephesians 2, verse 2 and 3 tells us that the enemies of God's people are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're intimidating. They're insulting about God's people. They're irreverent about God and Jesus Christ. The enemies of God's people have not changed. They just wear a different costume. That brings us to the second point, the weakness of idols. I want us to notice verse 11. Do you mind if we read it all together? Can you turn to verse 11, open it up, and we're going to read it all together. Are you ready? Okay. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So Goliath has come. He's challenged the people. He's the enemy of God. He's defined the king, defied the king. And Saul, being the champion, the biggest one there, is powerless in face of the onslaught. What's the picture? Well, it's a damning indictment of all the people of God had come to put their trust in. You look back at the previous seven chapters, their biggest desire was for a king, a king like all the other nations had. God gave them Saul, just what they wanted. And the people had begun to stop trusting God and put their trust in Saul instead. He'd become the one they worshipped. He'd become their idol. So in this one verse, the writer is saying, if you belong to God's people, but trust in something other than God, then it will fail in the face of God's enemies. So you can have your money. Your car, your power. You can have the great boyfriend or girlfriend. You can reduce God to someone you do in your own time and in your own way. You can have your popularity and your posse of fab friends whom everyone is jealous of. But those idols will be powerless when the flesh, the world and the devil come and take you away from God and destroy you spiritually. And the truth is that if your God is simply a God of your own making... A God you like. A God who is under your rule and does things in your ways. You've made him, you've turned him into an idol that is not God. And then when opposition comes, then when the world, the flesh and the devil come and you try to talk to that God, you're not talking to God, you're just talking to this little idol that you've made. So no wonder it fails. Just like Saul failed God's people because he was their idol. And the powerless of Saul forces us to wonder what, what is it that makes us? What defines us? What shapes us? What, what is it that, 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 that influences us most? What do we actually trust the most or value the most? Those are our idols. Is it money? I'm sure many of us will say, oh no, it can't be money. But if you're not giving to God, then your money is where you put your trust. Why? 
because it's too precious to give to God and his gospel work? Do our lives revolve around our image or our identity? What people think of us or see of us? Are we really precious about what's on our Facebook page or our Insta account or our WhatsApp group? Are we precious, so precious about those things? Well, if we're, we're obsessed with them, we will be crushed by the next critical comment. Put it another way. What happens when your sinful desire makes you do something stupid that you just can't stop yourself from doing? What happens when the world sucks you in to watch porn on your phone? What happens when the devil tempts you to doubt the existence of Jesus Christ and all his majestic reality? Well, if you're trusting in a false god, you will be crushed because they will be powerless to stand against the enemies of God's of God's people. And the passage tells us that kind of idolatry is endlessly crushing and endlessly powerless. Look at verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 40 days Morning and evening, Goliath goes out and tells them exactly what they are. Your God is powerless. Your king is powerless. You might as well just be my servants. Why do you turn up, people? Why do you bother? I'm going to crush you. What are you going to do? And what's even more interesting... It's actually almost tragic. For 40 days, there's no answer from God's people. For 40 days, no one turns to God. For 40 days, Saul doesn't say, Peter, go and get Samuel, please, because I'm helpless here. He says nothing. Absolutely helpless in the face of God's Enemies, powerless. I hope we tremble at the powerlessness of idols. I hope this exposes the powerlessness in all its fragility, in all its uselessness. And I hope it forces us to filter through our minds, what am I trusting in? Where is my hope? Where is my trust? Where is my, where is my identity secure? What is that security based on? Because if it's not God and his son, Jesus Christ, it is the, the, the shakiest and most useless and worthless foundation in the face of God's enemies that there is. I hope this picture shakes us. Because it's a picture of a powerless, endless situation. But that brings us to our third point and our last point this evening. It's simply this, the strength of God's king I love, I love the way this story is crafted. There's no greater contrast between verse 11 and verse 12. Do you spot it there? We've just read together how utterly useless, worthless, powerless God, uh, the, the idols of God's people was, Saul. 
And what's the next two words? Now David. Now David. It's, it's bitingly sarcastic. The writer's just completely trolled Saul for being a weak, unbelieving king. And in these two words, God basically says, guys, I get your helplessness. You are so helpless, you cannot help yourselves. You are weak and frail and like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, David, I give you my king. I give you my king. And what does the writer tell us about God's king? Verse 13 to 16 tells us he's not glamorous. He's a shepherd and a water boy, a Tesco delivery guy. And they illustrate actually how an idol warps our worldview. I find it funny. You've got Jesse there. You've got uh, David's eldest three brothers. They've, they've been in the picture all the time. They were there when Samuel arrives with all his entourage. They were there when Samuel works through brother after brother after brother, selecting, select, trying, looking for the one who would be king, and each one is turned down, and they get to David, who has to be fetched from the fields, and David stands there, and, and Samuel gets out his flask of oil and anoints David as God's king over Israel because his heart is true and right before the living God and the living God fills him with his Holy Spirit. They've seen it all. And yet what do David's brothers do? They go off kinging with their their idol Saul. What does Jesse do? Uh, No, no, Samuel, uh, no, no, David, I mean, um, no, David, actually, you, 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 you deliver the goods to the voice. That's it. That's where your place is. And can you see how blind they are in their idol worship and how their idol worship has so reduced their worldview that they can't see God's answer to the problem? They kind of say, okay, God's answer to the problem. You go and do the grocery delivering. And it's again another picture of how blinding our idolatry is. Because the answer to the enemies of God's people is reduced to delivering groceries. And yet, look at God's grace. Verse 17 to 22. God works the whole system. God guides events to get his king to the place where his people need him. It's another one of those passages in the Bible where you have to laugh at the subtlety. In spite of the world's attempt to keep David away from the action because he's such an insultingly weak solution to the problem, God works. And God gets David to the battle lines. And then look at verse 23. As he was talking to them, Goliath, here we go again, The Philistine champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. It's another little subtlety from the writer, isn't it? And David heard it. It's a bit like one of those situations at school where you're doing a humorous impression of of the head teacher and your mates are laughing and then they're not. And then you realize... The head teacher is behind you. And you're thinking, what's going through your mind is, I'm so, so much in so much trouble. This is, not, this is not funny. And the same applies here. David has heard this defiance. Goliath is in so much trouble. Why? Because this is God's king. 
and look at what God's king says. David asked the man standing near him, verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's the first recorded words of King David, and rather than speaking patriotic twaddle like in the movies, he speaks theology. And he's incensed. He's incensed because of Goliath's insult to God's glory. And that's the difference between powerless idol and go- idols and God's king. God's king cares about God's glory and idols can't be bothered. And not only that, God's king is utterly God-centered and confident in the outcome. Isn't that that refreshing in the context of this story so far, even in the context of the whole book so far? We've had chapter and after chapter after chapter of Saul messing up and Saul doing things his own way and Saul rejecting God and rejecting Samuel and Samuel's disappointment and God's disappointment chapter after chapter after chapter. And finally, here's a little lad who says things as they are God's way. There's theology for you. And doesn't it make us long for a king like that? The original readers, the guys this was written to, would have longed for a king like that. See, those guys were a typical exile, a Jew, having been taken from their home, their family ripped out of Israel and plonked in a country called Babylon, hundreds of miles away. And this was written for them. They'd been exiled, they'd been ripped out of their country purely because of kings like Saul, who'd led the people away from God and provoked God's anger at God's people. And what do they read here? They read of God's King David. And the picture he represents. The picture of a king who would come and be victorious over God's enemies, and lead his people rightly. He would be the good shepherd of the people of Israel. He would be David's greater promised son. And he would truly rescue his people from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He would be truly incensed at their impact on this world, and he would truly act on his people's behalf to save them. And you only need to look at Matthews chapter 4 to 9. Do me a favor and read those through this week. Matthews, Matthew chapters 4 to 9. And what you read there will be astounding. Because when Jesus comes into this world, he teaches with his authority. It's his theology. Not some borrowed tradition, but his theology. And he undoes all the damaging evidence of the world and the flesh and the devil around him. He undoes it. He challenges that fleshly religious elite who, who, who have turned faithful worship of God into religiosity. He forgives the sinners who crowded around him. He casts out demons who oppose him. The world, the flesh, the devil. 
This is Jesus. King Jesus. And what you get through those chapters is a a sense of his majestic incandescent rage at all that he sees in this world which is not working for his glory. He undoes it. Whatever he comes across, he undoes it. Why? Because it's not for his glory and he, he echoes the same passionate love for the glory of God as David does in this passage. This is Jesus. And the question is, will we worship him? Oh, it does. This, this beautiful picture does challenge us, doesn't it? To, to just examine ourselves. What do we trust more than him? What does our world revolve around if it's not him? Because our idols, whether it's our money or our pleasure or our people's opinions, well, those idols are weak. And God's king is strong. And this part of this story just challenges us. It it challenges us to take a step back and to see those two things. Idolatry is weak in the face of God's enemy. But praise God, God's king is strong. There's some, some questions on your tables. That they're going to come up on the next, on, on the next slide. Um, do, do have a chat um, for the next five minutes, really, over those. Um, and then Rui's going to come and lead us through um, a communion.